Let me introduce to you the cinematographer, John Broderick. Hi there. Hi there. Thanks for having me, John. Nice to uh, see or meet everyone that's out there. Yep. It's good to have you. And I'm very excited. That show is just stunning. And we'll talk more about it later. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the beginning, not, not influences, but let's talk about a little bit how you start a project off of any sort. What, what, how do you decide on your approach for lighting, your camera motion? Is there like a general process of how you get there in the beginning? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. Um, first of all, I want to say what a great idea this is. And uh, I really look forward to um, seeing the other um, episodes that come through down the line. I think it's great to talk a little bit more about the craft over the, um, I guess, the more technical aspects. Um, in terms of uh, establishing a process, you know, generally, I really want to listen mostly at the beginning and, and hear, I mean, I mean, most of the work that I do is based on um, television and episodic television. So, you know, there's a lot of voices that you hear um, often even before a director becomes involved, you know, you're, you're talking to a showrunner, which is essentially the, the writer um, and, uh, and, the, and the producers. And usually as part of the interview process, you've gone through, a, um, you know, either reading a script. There might be a pilot that already existed, which is what was ha what had happened with The Great that already shot the first episode. And so you're either maybe inheriting some choices or looking at those choices and talking about, you know, ways and uh, that you respond to the story but it all comes for me out of uh, you know a reaction to story and trying to understand what the story is that you're telling uh, because I think all of the other choices that you make that are kind of technical come from understanding story so for me the most important thing is to get inside the uh, the storyteller's head whether that's the showrunner and then becomes the director or on a film usually it's more typically the director and then just trying to then translate that uh, understanding of thematically what the story is and what the kind of nuance of that is, um, and then trying to translate that into pictures. You know, how do you represent those ideas pictorially? How do you transfer those ideas conceptually into images that kind of have that meaning? Um, and so often what I like to do is, is have a, uh, well, I'll, I'll start off with trying to understand the story as deeply as I can. And then I start trying to work up a, uh, I call it a manifesto, um, and it's a kind of a phrase really stolen from uh, Lars von Trier, um, you know, and he, he uh, um, had that, that uh, Dogma 95 manifesto or, you know, if you see there's a great documentary that he made about creative process called The Five Obstructions. Um, and uh, that's worth a look because it talks about what are the kind of limitations that you want to place in a way on yourself. And it's, it's interesting to think about setting rules for yourself. So. You know, a show that I did a few years ago, the director and I kicked around the idea of saying, let's just shoot with one lens. Like, let's pick a focal length. You know, would it be a 35 mil? Would it be a 50? Let's shoot the whole show with one lens, which unfortunately we got scared of and didn't do. We, we ended up picking three lenses. But but you still, you know, you try and kind of create those ideas. And often they come out of story, you know, that you're trying to say, how do we represent something? What is a kind of artificial limitation that, or, or parameter that we can set? And, and sometimes you kind of come up with really creative ways to then get around those limitations that you set for yourself. So, um, you know, with the, uh, a show like The Great, it might be that, okay, whenever we see Catherine, her close-ups are a little bit closer than everybody else. She's always in the middle of the frame instead of being off to the sides because she's the, the center of the focus. So it, there's lots of ways that you could you could make that work. You know, we, we might start saying, let's shoot close-ups first and then we'll do wide shots at the end. 
Um, if it's comedy, for example, you might think that performance is more important. So, you know, you start trying to work up a, a, a manifesto, like a set of rules, like a playbook, you know, and you're not always going to rigidly stick to that. Um, sometimes you do, but uh, often you'll you have to break those rules. But it just sets out an idea or, or, or an intention of where you want to go and where you want to take the, the, the visual language of, of what you're doing. Uh, and gives a kind of structure. And then it helps, you know, inform other choices about which cameras you're gonna use, which lenses you're gonna use, how you're gonna light this, what is the, the design approach that you're looking at. So it kind of gives you a structure to, to build that, that kind of house out of, uh, and gives you a way to kind of approach things and, and be able to know the answers to questions as they, the million questions that come up when you're, um, you know, doing a show um, as big as something like The Great. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, I can see that with, I know, I didn't know that about the great in terms of uh, her close-up stuff, but I totally remember that now. But I also know that there was a, like a, an intention not to focus on the, um, the beautiful environments and the, you know, yeah. it's not really architecture. I mean, we're going to show it, but it's just part of the story. It's not the story. And the resonance is about moving the camera and dynamics and all that's going to inform how you light it and what fixtures you can use and things like that. Is that right? Exactly. So, you know, with the great, um, the showrunner, Tony, was really, you know, he, the show is very anti-history. You know, he doesn't want the show to be confused with your typical BBC costume drama. It's made for a different audience and a way to signal that as much as possible. I mean, the writing, you know, as soon as you watch, watch it within five minutes, you know, it's not one of those shows, but just visually rather than kind of chocolate box images and dwelling on these kind of very highly crafted um, set piece kind of moments where everybody's positioned just perfectly and compositionally beautiful. It's a lot more haphazard. It's a lot more chaotic. Uh, and it's not about, I mean, the costumes are, are magnificent and wonderful, but we're not kind of uh, fetishizing them in any way. They're just kind of by the by. We really yeah. wanted to make it like it was a contemporary show and they just happened to be wearing these amazing opulent um, outfits in these amazing settings, but there was no kind of big, sweeping crane shots to make you know show how much money we had because it's not about that it's it's really about this kind of personal relationship between a man and uh, and his wife i mean tony literally said to me this show is about a woman who wakes up one day and, and realizes she's in a really bad marriage now it does happen that they are uh, royals and that they're they're in a, the russian court in 1850 but that's kind of secondary information um you know same with the resident you know it's a it's a hospital show which is its own genre and really, I've got to tell you this as a side note, you know, often when you do a show, um, you, you start doing research and you think, okay, what are the other shows that are similar in terms of tone? And I found it really hard with The Resident because I realized that there really isn't a cinema or filmmaking, movie making equivalent to a medical show. You've got some shows that are about doctors like Patch Adams or something, mm -hmm. but there's no, there's no kind of uh, filmmaking equivalent um, to look up when you when you say okay let's look at cinema references for doctors and nurses or medical shows you know it's it's a little bit harder to find those but um you know the big thing with the resident was uh we really wanted to try and have a lot of energy to it so there's a lot of momentum obviously uh it is life and death a lot of the time because of the the scenarios that are being played out and you want to try and heighten those and and give people a little bit of respite so you know there was a lot of talk about energizing the camera and making it quite uh, frenetic and also being realistic as well. Like we went to a lot of trouble with the uh, procedures to, I mean, 
you know, yes, we do uh, an operation like a multi-limb transplant. It normally would take 17 hours in real life. You're not going to sit there for 17 hours and watch it happen. It happens in 42 minutes. But, um, you know, as far as we could, we tried to be very authentic and realistic with the process. And even when you're looking at a lot of the um, prosthetics and the components, in it, it, it's truly very, very realistic. I mean, it was horrific every every. Uh, in pre-production, having to watch the uh, videos that the medical advisor would show yeah. you of uh, <laughs> what you know, it was like. Yeah. I'm pretty sure though, I, I could I could probably um, give you a heart transplant though now. now that okay, well, let's <laughs> put that in our our hat for later. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's one of the things. Not to get off on that part of the resident resident, but uh, it's it, watching some of those scenes. It's like how did that looks so realistic? Mm. How do you even get past like you know? being able to show that on TV because we know it's fake, but boy, you can't tell. It's as if you did the operation on somebody else, but that's a, a scary thing. So <laughs> um, let me uh, jump onto one question real quick before we start getting into some specifics. And this is one that I know is kind of against the rules, but I kind of want to know the answer to this too. So maybe you can give us a little answer. Mm -hmm. So um, Sandy wants to know what sparked your interest in cinematography. Um, I think when I was a young, guy a uh, young man my mom gave me a camera when i was very young and uh, i just became fascinated with with taking photos and being a photographer uh, and i really liked the permission that it gave you to access people you know that it sort of meant that i could go up to someone and, and take a photo of them uh, or go into their space uh, and then later on i mean i kind of kept i mean it was like the first hobby or first interest that i had that i didn't get bored with you know photography is is always rewarding and even today it's part of my practice as a cinematographer uh, and then later on when i went through um, uh, uh, college and university i started a degree actually in photography but as part of that we did some cinematography some moving images cool. uh, and i fell in love but well, i shot my first bit of film was uh, was just some black and white um, reversal in a in a uh, little handheld um, camera and I, uh, I remember just the joy of, um, I actually just ran around a children's playground. So I went on the, on the swing set and down the slides and on the merry-go-round. And then I projected it to the class. There's about 40 students. And just seeing those images up on the big screen and feeling the audience react like it was a kind of a cheap uh, roller coaster movie, I really was seduced by, um, by a, being able to move an audience and experience uh, that with an audience as well. So that just that was it for me so you know that it's always been something i've been very interested in in terms of you know making images and it just sort of translated from the still photo into the moving images great so um i want to get into technical stuff a little bit one of the questions up here is is kind of leading that way so i'll, I'll start with that um i don't you might know these people i don't know whether you know lonely elbow productions but I don't I know what your favorite lenses are <laughs> uh, all of them. I mean, I love, I love that now. Uh, uh, lenses are kind of the, the, you know, the funny thing is, I came up in like yourself uh, on film, and that's where I learned, you know, at the very beginning, uh, and then transitioned into digital later on. And the, the funny thing is, when you shoot on film, you know, there's all these differences in the film stocks, how you expose them, and even down to the labs. You know, uh, I was in Melbourne or I was in Sydney. You get a different result from different cities' labs, uh, and you'd start accounting for that. But nowadays, you know, when you buy uh, an Alexa or a Blackmagic, you know, G2, it's the same in, you know, New York as the same as LA. And so your kind of pictures end up being the same. But the way that we can affect the images now as cinematographers is through the lenses in front. And I think that's what's driven this huge demand and interest now in vintage lenses because everyone's trying to, you know, find a way to 
do something that's a bit more, I hate the word organic, but the, the, that's a little bit more improvised in terms of what happens in front of the camera because it's hard to recreate that in post. You know, mm-hmm. the same with post, you know, if you get 120 light, you know, lookup tables or, or different effects or plugins that you get for your post, it just looks like everyone else's version of that plug. You know, you apply the plugin, you kind of, it looks the same. So having a unique lens in front of it that, that draws the image in a unique way is one of the ways now that as cinematographers, we can kind of uh, take control of that image uh, when we're shooting it and you do it in a way that's hard to reproduce later on. So it makes it more maybe authentic or more unique. But that being said, I will answer the question. I mean, my, my recent lenses that I've really liked uh, very recently and I didn't expect to like them was actually the Zeiss uh, Supremes, um, which I just shot the recent uh, 12K footage with. Um, and I wasn't really expecting to like them. Normally, I don't like lenses that are very kind of perfect and precise. And they certainly are a very clean and nice looking image, but they do render or the, the geometry of how they draw a face is very nice. Um, a long uh, l- beloved lens for me, though, is the older Zeiss uh, Super Speeds. These are from the 80s. Those are my um, favorites. Too. I really like them, too, because they're really small and they're really fast. They're a one3 uh, the focus pullers often hate them because they're not internal focusing. So you have to put a clamp on map box on them and it moves and yeah. they don't like them so much, but I love them. Uh, the image is a little bit dirty, you know, it's a little, not quite nice around the edges. Uh, uh, and it's a bit textured, I guess you'd call it, but they do render in a really, really nice way. But, you know, I always love, um, trying to apply, um, a, a lens logic, but it's so hard to talk about lenses because there's so many kind of esoteric and very subjective ways that that people you know describe them but you know yeah Zeiss super speeds would probably be one of my go-tos um and recently the the actually going back to Zeiss the supremes i also love primos actually which are which are kind of panavision's version of um those uh, uh primes from the from the 80s era so that's just in that kind of film era uh, as well uh, and interestingly you know i guess I'm, i've named a bunch of primes there i tend to prefer shooting on primes again maybe going back to that idea of a manifesto or a discipline i like the idea of a set kind of focal lengths and thinking okay this is a 35 mil shot or this is a 50 mil shot and uh and i find with zooms i just don't like enjoy that process as much when it's you know 67 mil or something i guess i could limit myself to what's on the on the zoom but yeah i don't tend to i mean i'm you know you always carry zooms but i don't tend to use them as much yeah i hear you so um so let's jump forward a little bit now to uh, the resident. So we talked a little bit about how that kind of where you got that um, that set of rules, but it's such a fast paced style. Did you light almost exclusively overhead or how did you incorporate lighting into yeah. the process? Well, I mean, these days, uh, one of the you know challenges you face when you're shooting episodic TV is the speed you know we, we've got to do you know eight or nine minutes of screen time a day for weeks on end and you need to have a way of doing that really quickly uh, and still you know making it look good uh, so i've tried to in the, as much as i can for the last few shows i kind of have been building the lighting into the set and that means i can kind of i don't have to bring stuff in so it's not it's a little bit faster and you know if the actors wander off into a corner um, hopefully, you know, you're not going to be seeing stuff that you shouldn't see. So, you know, I work a lot with the uh, art department, the set dressing department and the production designer to try and build in as much lighting as I can. You know, if you're looking at some of my recent um, 
shots uh there's like a lot of lamps uh you know in, in someone's house or something it's because you know that that's kind of often how i'm lighting the, the sets now because this is the great thing you know since we transitioned from film to digital cameras you can light a set with the prac lights it used to be you'd have a few pracs in there but you have to bring in other lights to augment it because you know there wasn't enough level coming out of those practical lights but nowadays you can light with practical lights and it can look really good. So with a, with a show like The Resident, you know, it's a, most of the time, probably 80% of the show is set in the hospital. So it's, you know, these corridors and we designed these kind of LED based um, cove lighting uh, so we could change the color. Uh, and we also have some regular fluorescent tube style lights, although they, those were LEDs as well. And that's another point actually, like, you know, one of the big challenges with a show like The Resident is you know, you want to show the time of day, you know, you're in a set day in and day out. You, the marks are still on the floor from three scenes ago on the other episode where you shot in the same corner of the room. You want to represent that it's a different time of day. And so I like using color to do that. So with uh, uh, the resident, we had a kind of a night look and a day look. And even within that, we would make little changes uh, to the to the light. And, and it was based on color, you know, so I sort of went uh, we also uh, had the, the uh, set dressers put in some wall sconces and things like that. So they would come on and they would be warmer. But during the day, they would be off. You know, we just have the, the overhead lights on in daylight mode and, and more sunlight coming in through the windows. Nighttime, we would change the color to be warmer. The wall sconces would come on. The level from the roof would be a lot less and it would also be warmer. So we tried to give the audience um, cues as to what time of day it was. Same with uh, the grate, you know you're on sets most of the time uh, and you don't even have lights anymore. You've only got windows, you know, for justification of a light source and you've got a fireplace in most rooms and you've got candles. Uh, so to try and tell what the time of day is, it becomes really a challenge. And so in our manifesto, we said, or I came up with the idea or the logic that, you know, in the morning, the candles are off. So if you're in a scene, the candles are off, but there's, you know, light coming through windows. It's probably the middle of the day morning then towards the afternoon, maybe two or 3 p.m., and we would actually get background uh, artists or extras to come through and light the candles so you could see that this was a routine that happened in the palace. The candles would come on and then there would be candles for um, you know going into evening. So you'd have a dusk period where there would be still daylight coming in, but the candles are on. And then obviously for evening, it would be all candles and you'd have some kind of version of moonlight. And again, for a set, it's really important that you can show the audience what time it is. and so. I'm constantly in my script breakdowns looking at what time it is for each scene and trying to work out, okay, what's the lighting state going to be that shows that in this set uh, for that. So, you know, that's, that's part of the logic. So I kind of try and set like 80% of the lighting is done by the stage itself, by the set that's built into what's there. Then um, depending on what the shots are, I'm usually adding a few little supplemental things. So, you know, it could it, like in a wide shot, you almost don't need to add anything because the set will do all of the work for you. And then as someone you know comes into a closer frame, you can start to just bring in something simple uh, and, and very minimal. I have a very, I don't want to say lazy, but a very minimal way of lighting. I don't like building this kind of big forest of stuff because, um, you know, again, I, I'm always conscious of the, of the speed that you need to work. And I often think that the simplest uh, solutions actually look the best anyway. They're the fastest. And, you know, usually it's just bringing in something that's big, soft, you know, close, say, uh, you know, just to supplement uh, and, and augment. Uh, but, you know, most of the time you're just kind of going off what's already visually cued from, from a wide shot anyway.
So would you say that in both of these situations, you might start with the wide shots being more of uh, the practical lighting and or a large source lighting, and then but making sure that's going to cover you once you get to close-ups. And then when you move to close-ups, like you said, you bring in something to supplement the fill side or something like that, just to make it a little sweeter when you get closer. Is that more? Absolutely. That, that's definitely the logic. Although I will, I will confess that, um, and it's probably heretical to say this as a cinematographer, I've, the last few shows, I've, I start with the close-ups. I actually start in here first. So, you know, you do, uh, in a typical day, you would obviously block the scene. You know where the actors are going to go. You might talk to the director about, you know, pushing them over towards a window or, you know, you try and build the staging and force the staging to help you if you can. You might try and suggest a way that you could reduce the number of setups. So you're trying to work out what what's the scene involved? How many setups do I need to shoot this scene? Does the director have specific ideas for particular shots? Sometimes they've got a one that they want to do. But, you know, let's, let's assume that you're kind of finding the coverage as you go. Uh, I will start with the close-ups because in television, again, the speed is the, is the thing. So I would rather burn more time on close coverage. Uh, and, you know, you've got a scene. If, you, if, you, if you're really up against it and you've got two hours to get a scene, if you start with the close-ups, you've got a very good scene. Uh, and half the time you don't need the close the wide shots because the wide shots in in a lot of uh, um, regular drama they'll use it at the beginning of the scene to show that you know you're in this room and then they'll use it at the end as a way to get out and go to the next scene. Uh, but you could you could easily just go straight into a close up in a scene and people will know probably know where you are based on the history of the show or you know identification of the colors through production design. So lately I've been yeah just just start with the close ups. Um, and you know you've, you you let the room establish that way, and often too it, it helps because you know there's no rehearsals in uh, in TV. It's not like they've been working on this for six weeks and then you know they've done it in the space. I mean, when you're blocking the scene, you're seeing it for the first time with the actors. The actors are doing it for the first time in that space, and they're they're still kind of feeling it out. So if you start with the close-ups, you actually find that by take three or four, when they've changed the action and they put the cup down on a different line and move around to the other side of the table, if you shot the wide shot first, it never matches. Um, yeah. If you're working on close-up still, uh, you, you can you can kind of keep finessing it. And then when you've got what you want, you can back out into a wide shot and then you're just taking stuff out of the shot. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and, uh, and it, you know, I find it actually is a kind of different process, but it, but it works really well and the actors really like it too because they tend to come out really hard from the beginning and they want to you know do a great performance and now that they know that the close-ups are first they sort of come out really you know big with their performances and you know you, you're doing all the discussion and tweaking of that with the director and then they can kind of settle into it and by the time you know the energy's dissipated because they've done the scene 17 times on a wide shot you can't tell that their performance energy is you know a little bit less than when they first came out because it's in a wide shot. So, you know, I, I, there's a great logic to it, I think, and I, I found it works really yeah. well. That makes a lot of sense. It does. Um, let's real quickly, you shared with me, and I can share with everybody too, in a link uh, from The Resident, this uh, VR camera. Can you show oh, yeah. a bit of that? Can you just talk a little bit through yeah, what, I mean, um, what this is and then yeah. what we're going to see? And I'll, I'll try to run it while you talk about it. So, so this is a, an end of an episode. Uh, Now, but yeah, hold on, we'll, hold on, John. Well, My, I was misled to believe that I could play the clip and we can hear each other. So hang on a second. Oh, okay. Let me let me try it again, and I'll try to unmute your mic. 
Or maybe you can do that for me, see if you can unmute your mic. Sure. How's that? Uh, hopefully you can hear me now. So this was a one um, that we did um, uh, for the resident. And the idea was to, you know, visit a few couples within the scene. And uh, um, you can see that it's a VR camera attached to a Blackmagic um, Ursa Mini Pro G2. Um, we'll send you the link so you can actually zoom in and around. You can have a look, but it's, it's really fun to watch. Uh, you can see the key grip behind me there. Um, the two cast down. If you look down in the in the, the Vimeo version of this, you can even see the shot on the screen um, as I'm going. This was uh, all in a bar, uh, and you can see there's a ring light actually attached to the front of the camera. And you watch me turn it on just now. I just uh, hit the button as we were walking through uh, for the next couple. You can see above there too. There's a couple of uh, small um, um, uh, soft lights that are up there just in um, in diffusion uh, uh, rigs uh, and that was all kind of pre-rigged but you can see all the lighting is kind of off the floor uh, and that's because I like to sort of um, keep the floor clear and free and it enables me to walk around uh, and get everything I need you can see uh, again up at, up above there's a couple of light sources you can see the uh, boom swingers moving around behind me uh, we're on to our third couple now now this this probably took like I don't know, maybe about 40 minutes to stage. It wasn't really planned before we got there. We just kind of worked it out with the actors. It was kind of written in the script as, as being this kind of continuous scene, and you could have done it in cuts. Uh, and, you know, no doubt we did shoot other coverage here, but the idea was to kind of master this uh, all in the kind of one, um, one moment. Um, you can see here that um, we're going to walk back over to a jukebox and reveal... Mr. Zuckery here, number one on the call sheet. And again, the lighting there was me just replacing some of that uh, jukebox there with some LED uh, lights. And, you know, you're in a bar, so there's a lot of justification for the extra color and a bit of smoke and atmos. Um, so, yeah, it was just a kind of a fun um, exercise to do. And, uh, and again, fits in with the resident because, you know, you have that kind of energized uh, feeling um, of being handheld. I really like using a smaller camera like this because it means means I can do little adjustments like this one here at the end where I tilt down to his hand. That was kind of unrehearsed. Um, that was just a moment, but that's, you know, that's a nice natural cut to see him hit that button. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a shot. So it's fun to look at that um, in its VR mode because you can kind of zoom in and out and watch it a few times. So um, I use that technique a lot. Um, and we would often uh, do a scene in the um, 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 uh, emergency room. So when you know a patient comes in and they're diagnosing and, and making some calls, I would shoot it in very similar way where it kind of move around, but much faster with a lot more running. But uh, you get the idea. And because you're kind of small and agile, you can kind of move this camera around and get it and poke it into little places. And it just it, it's just very responsive. And so we kind of master it that way, uh, almost like a moving uh, tracking master. Uh, sort of doing some close coverage and then we kind of uh, would start doing close regular close coverage after that and then we kind of go back to a wide shot um, if we had time sometimes you wouldn't but you know that kind of moving master gives you the feel of that anyway yeah great that was really cool to see um, so let's let's I want to get to a bunch of great questions that are in the list but I want to touch on a few things if we can move to the grade a little bit I know that one of the things that's unique about the grade is how you sh you particularly, I don't know what the other cinematographers that do episodes are the same, but how you use camera, because I know that you use the secondary camera to cover a lot of alternate angles. Yep. So to speak. Yeah. Um, I, I have well, to I mean, too, so yeah, you let me know so when I should uh, say something. Oh, sorry, go on. 
you let me know if I should play one of them. I'll, I'll play it. But... Oh, sure. I mean, um, well, let, let's just talk about it quickly. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, using lots of cameras is something that's very common, um, especially in television, because, you know, it, it saves you a little bit of time. Um, but actually what it really does is save the actors because they don't have to perform it as much and uh, you can get lots of options. Uh, I'm a little bit unusual, I think, because a lot of people that use two or three cameras will tend to shoot down the same line of action. So they'll do a medium shot and a close-up at the same time. Whereas I prefer to actually cross shoot. I'd do two close-ups of two actors at the same time and then do two medium shots of two actors at the same time rather than two shots and two shots. So you've got you know a, a slight difference in approach there. And the reason I like to do that is because um, it, I think, and this is weird for a cinematographer, I guess, but I think it, it leads to a more natural uh, performance because the actors don't have to uh, worry about overlapping each other. You know, if you if you're shooting two shots and two shots, and as an actor speaking off screen, they'll tend to not want the the sound recorders will not want the actor talking over the top of the actor that's on camera, and so they have this very kind of stilted um, tennis match of of doing the lines. Whereas if you cross shoot, people can overlap each other, uh, and it, and the continuity also matches as well. So intra take continuity if they're talking or kissing or whatever they're doing it always matches you've always got the opposing angle so i always go in looking for that style of coverage and then often i have a third camera which might be a profile that gets you know some details of hands or just gets an alternate angle and one take does one side or one take does the other side and that way with two or three setups with three cameras doing slightly different things all the time you all of a sudden get you know 19 different shots uh, and it's a very kind of uh, efficient way to get a lot of coverage um, with uh, the great being that it was a kind of period drama um, it wasn't like the resident where it was all kind of crazy and handheld and high stakes drama it was a little bit more formal and considered and so we would do a lot of more i guess you would call it more regular maybe more vanilla uh, style coverage where it was a bit more formal and a little bit more considered um, but we would still, um, I, I call it kind of seasoning or it's like adding a condiment. Um, I would still use a handheld camera. Maybe you want to play that, um, that clip of me with the, with the G2. It's very similar to um, uh, previously in the resident, that resident clip where you saw me running. Around should unmute, unmute your mic if I play this and it mutes you. Just okay, I will do. Yeah. I don't know whether it does it or not. Okay, no problem. All right, so... You know, here's a shot of uh, Archie. Um, this is actually a scene that was deleted from the show, but he's uh, he's looking for mushrooms, and this is how Archie gets his uh, religious inspiration. Now you can see me working with the camera, and I'm talking to Archie uh, or Adam, who plays Archie there. I'm just having him reset. So he's already done the scene, you know, half a dozen times with regular coverage, and now I've put the camera down very low. So we've sort of shot, you know, three or four formal setups of, you know, where here we are in the woods. Here's Archie picking up a mushroom. Here's Archie anyway. Now I'm going in and, and sort of stealing all these inserts. Now, if we did this with the kind of regular coverage, um, it would take quite a while to get that shot. You can see I'm just moving. Uh, I'm able to put the camera right up in his face and look at how close I am to him. Uh, and usually by this point, you know, Adam, the actor here has done it a few times. Uh, so he, you know, he doesn't mind me doing what I'm he doing here and restarting things. So originally I started doing this as a way to kind of get inserts like you know here he is picking up the mushroom so i'll get that insert on the fly but it naturally just turns into coverage he'll start actually starting to eat it and because of the prop it takes a long time to reset i wanted he, i wanted to get a few goes at him picking it before he eats it so i had maybe two or three takes there where he where he picks up the mushroom and now he's going to eat it and i'll be able to again look with that camera be able to you know just 
get a bunch of different inserts and because the screen rotates i can i can very quickly go straight over the top of him and this is typical like for the resident for example if i was doing any of the um uh, operating theater type scenes being able to pivot that screen and hit, look at me rushing now to try and get more so you know in in the time it takes to do one take i've gotten i don't know i should have been counting the number of shots but there's probably you know 15 or 20 shots there um by just doing this at the end and just doing these little kind of um insert passes one of my assistants in the u.s called it the football because i sort of carried it i guess a little bit like a an american style football so it started becoming the football pass um, that would get done at the end and so you know it's just a it's just a really um quick way to generate a lot of coverage a lot of unorthodox and unusual scenes and different styles of uh, of shots that aren't like I guess normal normal coverage, uh, and the idea is that you collect a whole lot of these shots, and then in the edit, the editor will, can choose to use them or not. You've you've already got the the scene, you've already got you know three or four setups of of the kind of formal you know tracking shot under a tree, um, detail of him picking the mushroom, detail of him going down and starting to trip, and then you've got this other bunch of shots that are kind of a little bit more. Uh, and I, I call them a kind of condiment, like you would use uh, a sauce or salt or pepper. You can just season the scene up a little bit by adding or cutting into these kind of very close detail kind of shots. Uh, and it just sort of it gives you a bit of variety or seasoning in, 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 the, in the edit to be able to kind of, you know, change gears and change directions and, and signify things. So, you know, it's a very quick way of working. Uh, and I originally started actually doing it with um, uh, red cameras back when I used to shoot um, a lot more red. Um, I used to have a little stripped down um, uh, red Epic and I could run around and do something very similar. But the, the G2 now suits me very well for that because of the, the way the screen pivots. I, I really like how I can kind of hold the screen. I can actually pivot the camera around the screen and still you know, float the camera where I need to. Yeah. And by the way, if you haven't seen the, the great, that scene is hilarious. So it makes a lot of sense once you've seen the show. Right now it looks kind of weird probably, but uh, let's look yeah. at this other scene. And again, unmute your mic again. Um, yeah. This is a little bit more traditional. It's an interior. So maybe yeah. talk us through this one a little bit. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, okay, so uh, so this is the scene actually in uh, episode two. We've already shot the scene uh, uh, with regular coverage. And again, this is just me doing a pass at the end. Now, because she moves around a lot, uh, I've uh, as I've been watching the scene, th we've done this coverage last of all. So I kind of know the beats of when she moves. And when they come in and you can see the shot on the right the monitor there you can see the shot that's happening so that's my focus pull up and notice how i'm moving around uh, and tightening up the eye line um, so as they go into that um, that position there i can kind of move the camera into the eye line uh, and back out again as they as they move around um, now notice that the boom swinger and the focus puller they're kind of got to be on their toes because when i shoot this style it's very improvised you know at any point i might decide to go back onto l uh, L's face, for example, or to look at some other element. So they're always a bit nervous um, <laughs> when I do these shots because uh, I don't really plan too much about where I'm going to go. I tend to just kind of uh, wing it and um, and freelance a little bit on the coverage. So you can see there the camera's actually pointing back. <laughs> there's there's my poor boom swinger You're running around. Um, so, you know, that, it's a very common kind of thing. Now, notice I actually went very low when that happens. So I'll, I'll often know that he's there and I'll try and hide him behind something so uh, it's always fun to try and uh, keep a shot going that way but yeah i mean sometimes it'll it'll just work out and sometimes it doesn't uh, but it's, again it's a very spontaneous uh, energizing way to work and it just goes against the kind of normal 
formal style. And now the editor has a, and the director has a choice about when to use those moments. If they want to have a moment where there's a kind of revelation, they can kind of go to this kind of more energized handheld, or they can use the more formally traditionally shot um, coverage as well. So the shots that were done in traditional coverage, as you say, were they more like a slightly wider mediums and more? Exactly, just, yeah, it was like, like mediums, close-ups, right. um, yeah. exactly. And there was a, a, a pretty sure if I remember, there was a dolly that was kind of correcting as she was moving around. So it was more, you know, more traditional way you would shoot a scene like that. Also notice too, there was no lighting uh, on the floor. There was no stands or hardware. There was just people that, that can move around and get out of shot. Uh, and that's because again, that lighting approach, um, that was a set. You know, I've got a window there. The, there's a bunch of uh, tungsten light coming in through that through that window, through some shears, which act as a natural softening diffuser. There you go. That's the same room, actually, but uh, you, uh, you can see. Hey, I notice those candles aren't lit. That must mean it's in the morning, right? <laughs> um, so, um, you know, you've got some hard light coming in through uh, through the uh, windows there, uh, but there's a kind of a shear or lace or heavy curtain there that softens that a little bit. Uh, but there's no other hardware, you know, in that space. And that just means that the camera is a bit more free to roam and the actors are free to roam as well. They can kind of improvise a little bit more. And I really like um, giving the actors that ability to feel like it, you know, it, it looks like a more like a real set. It looks more, more like a real bedroom than, you know, this is actually her bedroom uh, set yeah. there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really like to work that way. And it just kind of um, makes it all flow a little bit faster and a little bit more nicely on set i feel like one of our jobs as as a dp on a show is to create a space for the actors to be able to work in but actually all of the crew to be able to work in including the director uh and do it in a way that is not uh doesn't bring kind of anxiety and tension there's a lot of um old school filmmaking that involves a lot of yelling and this kind of very uh, alpha male sort of shouty drill sergeant kind of mentality and I just don't think that's the best way to get the best out of actors. Maybe if you're making full metal jacket or something, but 99% of the time it's, it's much nicer if you, if you have a more calm working space and you don't have all this kind of gack and gear everywhere. So I'm always constantly trying to minimize, make the camera smaller, make it simpler, have less machinery and just kind of get out of the way. You know, I want right. to be an observer. I want to, I want to see what the actors are doing. I want to create a nice space for them and I want them if they want to do more takes that we've got time to do it. Um, that's kind of what drives a lot of my decision making through that kind of the prism of that manifesto that we've, we've created to try and kind of make a nice space for the actors to work in and, and do their best. Great. Um, just a question for me real quickly, and then we're going to get on to the question from somebody else. If you look at that shot or you look at something like this shot, Let's get back to this one because it's easy to see. What are you using on fill side for this? You have the window light that's the key, but yeah. are, do you have something up in the ceiling that's sort of filling in that? No, light? I mean, a lot of the time it's uh, for this, in this room, it was nothing because, you know, you've got uh, on that window, um, there were three uh, nine light or nine nine by 1,000 watt globes in a, in a maxi. So it's like a grid of nine lights. There's three of those uh, bashing through that window. And often I would also use a couple of uh, mole beams, which are a very um, uh, highly collimated beam of light. So you can get five or 10K tungsten mole beams. And it's just this very hot searing light that projects a long way into the set. And so I try and find a little, open a little gap in the curtains and just smack a little um, mole, mole beam from outside the stage and just put a little bit of even harder light on the wall, say in the background, just to give it some texture. 
Um, and in a wide shot, the ambience of, of all of that light coming through the window would bounce off the, the set and would be enough because there's enough dynamic range in the cameras now. When I come into something closer, if you go back to that shot, what I would maybe do would be to walk. And in fact, I think you can see it. There's a bit of poly there. So you see that dark edge with the um, in front of the chair and you can see it's squared off. That's actually a piece of four by four poly or white bounce. And so uh, that looks like um, uh, one of my gaff, uh, gaffer's uh, guys, it looks like Lee maybe, um, who's walking that piece of poly around. So as the camera moves around, there's a bit of poly and it's just bouncing a little bit of that, um, that light back. So I, I tend to use what's called very passive fill. I don't use active fill. It's not powered or lit. It's just bounce, you know, bits of white card that kind of we move around with the camera that just return a little bit of that light that's all coming in through the window. So it's a very um, naturalistic approach. It's not a pictorial approach at all. Um, you know, it's a bit more, um, you know, of a, uh, and, you know, I came kind of came from a more documentary, uh, low budget um, way of working. And I guess that's where some of those techniques come from. I don't tend to use a lot of lights and a lot of hardware because I'm just too impatient. You know, I, I just want to shoot and I'd rather get more takes rather than spend you know, a couple of hours making something look perfect, which I know probably is uh, detrimental to the, the the photography if you're just talking about the lighting itself. But to me, the momentum and the energy of working is actually what's important and just feeling like you are you're exploring the work and, and telling that story. Um, you know, I want to try and do that as much as possible and not not bring in all of this kind of stuff that slows things down, That's like great. lighting. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't need lighting anymore. Um, yeah. No, so I mean, you, you do use light, but you, 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 you're setting up the space and you're trying to stage. Like when we're staging that scene, if you go back to the photo, I wouldn't try and stage, you know, if she was standing next to a wall, I wouldn't be saying like, I'd be saying to the director, hey, can we put her into the middle of the room or can, can she move out into the, towards the window so that she's kind of taking, she's looking after us by standing in the right light where the room is lit. So, you know, I tend to light the space and not the, uh, not the person. You yeah, know, and then you stage it so that the person knows that if they stand in this area, they're lit. Uh, and the wonderful actors, most of them are pretty vain. If you say, "Hey, you look really great," if you, <laughs> if you stand over there, funnily enough, that's where they want to go when they're when they're blocking the scenes. And they they and you don't even need to. You just do that for a couple of weeks, and half the time they know. Uh, they'll yeah. just go towards the light. They're like moths. So they'll just move over there, and they'll they'll make take care of themselves. So, and then that way, half your job is done because you've lit the space. Um, they all stand in the right spot and you know you just need to take care of a little couple of things here and there so it's not that you're not lighting you're just kind of creating the best chance that the the set is already doing the lighting for you yeah so uh william had a, a long question that we covered a lot of but one of the things we didn't touch on maybe we can just touch on briefly is what you talk about when lenses you use what do you have a preference in cameras that you use generally or i know the great use alexa and the yeah. Um, I, I call my, like to think of myself as camera uh, agnostic and it really annoys a lot of my camera department because I carry a lot of cameras. I don't use just one camera um, and that's because I, I like building different cameras to do different jobs. So if I'm doing a little handheld runaround camera, that's why I like that little uh, G2 because I can make that camera really small and I can run around and get shots with it. But then I'll use a full-size Alexa um, for you know some of the shots because it's on a remote head and I, I like the the look of that camera so you know it, it really just depends on each job you know I'm about to start a job that'll uh, very likely be Sony Venice because um, you know we've done some camera tests 
uh, we've we've looked at the results and you know talking with the director and the production designer that's the the image that we liked the most so i i think um the whole kind of brand um ism is is a bit um you know i think a long time ago i realized that often if you get obsessed with the technology and the numbers and the specs it's not really about that because you're trying to apply that information to telling a story so that's really what's important not not the actual numbers or whether it's got the most of this or that or you know it's really about the aesthetic the res creative result that you get and how you apply that um, to an actual uh, storytelling moment so I, I end up carrying a lot of cameras because I'll use different cameras for different things it used to be that it was quite hard to match cameras within a scene but if you look at the great and the resonant is probably the same uh, I'd say about 70% of the great on my episodes, I didn't shoot all the episodes, but on my episodes, about 70% of the edit is Alexa and about 30% is uh, Blackmagic uh, G2. Um, and um, I know that the other cinematographer, Maya uh, Zamojda, uh, also did use it um, to maybe not exactly the same degree, but she certainly did use it a lot, um, the, 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 that kind of ratio. Uh, again, you know, you have a kind of principal main camera uh, and then, you know, I, I tend to have a lot of other little cameras and, you know, I, I carry little Olympus cameras that have got a, a very nice image stabilizer. And they're even smaller again than a Blackmagic. So if I'm, you know, doing something that requires a, a really tiny camera, then I'll go to that camera. So I, I always think that um, I, I don't want to kind of ever call out a particular brand because I, I actually don't even really own cameras. I, I've got some Blackmagic cameras only because I've sort of been left with the prototypes after I've been testing them. But otherwise, you know, I, I, I just rent the ones that will be best for the job because I think that's how you should do it. You know, if someone said to me, hey, we want to shoot on a, um, you know, uh, a, a, an iPhone, then that's what we'll use. You know, I, I just think it comes out of story uh, a lot of the time and, and that, that pre-production process. And I always enjoy, that's one of the things I enjoy most about starting another show is like, okay, how are we going to approach shooting it? Which cameras are we going to use? Which lens package are we going to pair with those cameras uh, to get that result? Great. Uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, let me try to hit one more question that is, a little, again, getting us back into that area of not the tech, but mm -hmm. wider. We'll pull ourselves. We'll go back out to the master shot right now. Yeah. Um, and I'd be curious to know this too. How, what was your big break in the industry? What got you from the point of doing, because you've done a lot of shorts early in your career, yeah. stuff like, like a lot of us younger, and I'm going to call myself a younger cinematographer experience was, um, but then you got into those great opportunities like Queen of the South. Yeah. And what was that big break? Um, I, I shot a lot of short films. I was, I was working at the time at a um, camera rental company that supplies equipment. And uh, the owner of that company was kind of a mentor to me and he encouraged me to take cameras out on the weekend. And so I was shooting a lot of short films and, and working with as many people as I could. Um, and one of those uh, directors that I did a short film with, you know, three years later came back and had this very low budget comedy series that, uh, that I ended up shooting. So that was kind of my, that was called Lowdown. That was technically my first, I guess, real job. Um, and um, at the time, the production designer that worked on that show, as well as one of the actors, uh, were working on another show that a very well-known Australian producer, John Edwards, was working on uh, called Offspring, which is now, you know, still to this day is a, is a popular show. It's on Netflix now, and a lot of Americans have started uh, watching it and discovering it. But it, um, it was really my, that was actually my, my, my big break was doing Offspring. 
And uh, I think a little bit, I mean, John um, Edwards is a great producer. He's done, you know, a hundred shows and he has a great mentality. And I've, I sort of try and do the same thing. You know, he, he likes to blood, he calls it blooding new crews. So he'll always have, he'll have four directors and one of them will be doing it for the first time. And of his HODs, the designer, the DP, wardrobe, one of those will be give, he'll be giving a break to. And he tries to do that as a way to develop new talent. But he also, it's selfish because he's, he's, he's bringing in the new ideas. And so, of course, when I interviewed to do Offspring, um, uh, no one had really <laughs> done much shooting with Red. The pilot for Offspring had been shot on a F900, a 230s camera. So I came in and was like, well, you need to shoot it on a Red and, you know, I told them all the things that were wrong about the pilot. <laughs> uh, and I think they appreciated in a way the honesty that I that I had in my interview and may, maybe the confidence. It was a 50-50 so, thing there rather than going to appreciate Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, and, you know, they, they gave me a chance. And I uh, I guess I didn't stuff it up, you know. Um, uh, um, yeah, it was, it was, maybe it was just the bravura of, of – um, uh, being young and, uh, and not having failed before, so you know, I, I just kind of took it, took some chances, and it worked out really well. And I, I and that's where I kind of learned my craft, I guess. Through I did that show for I think I did I think there's seven seasons. I think I did six or five and a half or six of those seasons. Uh, and yeah, that that was my opportunity. But it also taught me a lot. I mean, when I got that job, I was still thinking I was going to go and shoot movies, but I really realized how much I enjoy the form of television. And how, you know, TV at the time was just starting to come into its own with streaming, you know, now you could watch TV without ads. Uh, you could also binge watch a show and you could realize that that you could have much more sophisticated storytelling when you have 10 episodes or 12 episodes uh, of an arc uh, with more complex characters. And so now I, I'm almost exclusively working in television because I really enjoy uh, that form and, and that that's that's what that taught me as well. So. Yeah, when I when I was doing a lot of visual effects, they, we kind of got into that binge thing, and it was a nightmare for visual effects because it would never close episodes, but mm. you know everything would stay open because it was fluid until they got them all shot. And do you find yourself yeah. in that kind of world going back and shooting pickups for episodes that you shot months ago just because everything's still open? Um, I, well, I want to pat myself on the back a little bit. Um, usually because of the way we talked about already with the shooting of it, there's usually not stuff that gets left behind in terms of stuff, unless they change, unless there's a creative reason that they change the writing of it. Um, so most of the time there, there's not a lot of, um, pickups and I kind of take that as a point of uh, pride. Uh, but like on the great, for example, you know, uh, because they're delivering it all at once. Yeah, I mean, we're, I was grading the last two episodes and it was in lockdown. So I was trying to watch it on my television at home, which is not a precision monitor uh, and trying to kind of give grading notes and it was going to be on air within a couple of weeks. And so that that is is hard. You know, you feel the pressure of that. And sometimes you're seeing little mistakes um, that, you know, are probably not going to get fixed in time because of, you know, the VFX type things where you want to paint something out or see something that shouldn't be there. Uh, that that pressure is 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 difficult, but you know I I actually part of me also enjoys that tempo, and I think that's something that television um, brings now. You know, is there's a certain kind of pace um, of working, and I think that that something I really enjoy doing. That's great. Um, okay, one last question. We're going to slip in here before we're done. Um, um, let me put the question up. So RM Film wants to know when you deviate, because I guess he's considering what those description of shooting 
the great was yeah. sort of moonbright lining, but when do you decide you can shift off that, but not have conflicting styles within the same project? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, it's a great question. I mean, um, I think it goes back to your manifesto. You know, if, if you have a, an approach to lighting and using techniques like that Rembrandt lighting, which is, you know, having something that's lit, but something dark behind it, for example, um, if you're trying to do that all the time, you know, sometimes you can be successful and sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't uh, always win, um, but you might be aspiring to do that all the time. Um, but, you know, I think it, that sometimes those choices get forced upon you because you, you've got to make a call sheet. And I think uh, this will sound pretty uh, cynical, but a lot of the time I think uh, the reason I get employed is because I have a pretty good track record when the producers ring the producers from the last show I worked on. Uh, about not doing a lot of overtime. And to me, that's what's important is you have to deliver a result that has to look good, but the performances have got to be good and you kind of, you know, cost the production more money um, because that counts as well. That's part of your responsibility. You can't just be like, I, I'm just here to make this look good no matter what the cost is. And I think you have to be a little bit, or take on a little bit of that responsibility anyway. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I love trying to maintain an, a visual aesthetic if you make a choice about how you're going to light something like that uh, to try and keep it going. But you can't always uh, maintain it either. So, you, you know, sometimes you have to um, uh, lose. But, you know, that's the challenge. You know, it's like, OK, how am I going to how am I going to fit what I'm trying to go for here that's in my manifesto? How many of the 10 listed items am I going to be able to hit in this one scene? Uh, and that's the creative challenge. You know, that's what's fun about it. That's what's trying to, you know, what you're trying to work out and, and find a way to do it. And I like empowering the crew to help me with that too, you know, rather than, you know, trying to kind of dictate that all from the top. I, I, I try and involve the crew as much as I can. My operators, the gaffer, the grips, they all have a, a, a some ownership of those ideas and they all know what we're trying to go for. So they can instinctively move towards it as well. So that, that helps you out too. That's wonderful. Well, I guess our time is up now. Um, John, there's a million questions we all can probably ask you, but I appreciate you joining us. And uh, I know you're up north in quarantine right now and you're waiting to yes, get Yes, that's right. Uh, so uh, this is my first uh, post-corona project. Fingers crossed that it actually uh, happens. I'm, uh, I'm just in quarantine here um, for another 10 days. I'm in the far northern part of Ontario. Um, and uh, in about 10 days, we'll be allowed, <laughs> allowed out. I'm just doing a, a film here with uh, Philip Noyce, who's an Australian director that I've worked with a couple of times before. And Naomi Watts, another Australian. It's just kind of coincidental that there's all these Australians doing doing a show here in, in, in Canada. Uh, in Canada, but uh, yeah, hopefully it'll hopefully it'll work out. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, and uh, we hope to talk with you again sometime soon. Excellent. Get up and uh, thanks thanks for having me, and and uh, I really appreciate the uh, initiative as well. I think this is a great great idea. Great. Thanks, John.